3: Happy New Year and welcome back. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the word to stand up for life. It actually feels like I've been away for like a month, but we just said the Thursday and Friday of last week, but um, thanks for tuning back in. I hope this is a better year than 2020 was from every perspective, but most importantly, a better year in terms of getting close to and staying with Jesus no matter what. This program, as you know, is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or live questions. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, I'm glad to be back. I'm just glad that schedules now is sort of back to normal. It's not so hard to figure out what day of the week it is, but because things are going back to normal, um, tonight we're going to be having our men's and women's and youth Bible studies here at the church at seven o'clock. Ladies, Paula will be sharing a message that God has put on her heart and, uh, uh, it will also be live streamed at CalvarySA.com. I'm also told that it might be live on YouTube. Uh, That's what we are expecting anyway, but however you want to watch it, um, it will be live. Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, and then our youth pastors will be teaching the high school and the junior high schoolers, so you can make it sort of a family affair. Well, let me get to some questions. I've got a couple that I jumped the list a little bit with because they're dealing with sort of hurt and hopelessness, so I want to deal with that. But first, here's one that I needed to get to last week and didn't. It's from our email inbox from Kirby. Um, he or she says this may be a bit far-fetched, but I enjoy thinking it could have been regarding the saints who rose from their graves when Jesus died on the cross in Matthew 27. Do you think that Simeon from Luke chapter 2 could have been one of those people? I assume that he died after his prophecy to Mary and Joseph. Um, Kirby, we don't know who they are. We just know that they were righteous dead who came to life. Uh, I've said on this program and answered this question It's one that we get pretty often that I believe that this was sort of a precursor to the day of Pentecost when 3,000 Jews got saved. Uh, I think Jesus sort of turned these these uh, righteous dead, these Jews, uh, loose as evangelists. Imagine the the impact they would have had. Uh, but there's no reason to think that one would be Simeon. Um, you know, it could have been people from uh, from the distant past. More likely, however, Kirby, it's people who died fairly recently. Um, um, but, but beyond that, we, we really don't know who it could have been or if Simeon could have been one of them. I know this based on what we know about Simeon. If he was called out of being in the presence of, of of uh, all of the Old Testament saints in Abraham's bosom, he wouldn't have been happy to have come back when he saw Jesus and circumcised him and said, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. He was ready to go. So my, my tendency would be to think that he's probably not one of those, but the reality is that we don't know who um, the people were. We're not told some reason they don't think, uh, in heaven they don't think we need to know who it is, but um, like you, Kirby, I'm just curious. I'd like to know stuff that I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait to heaven until we get there. Here's a question from Martha, and I jumped the line with this one because I just sensed. Now, maybe it was just me, but I think maybe the spirit um, was was sharing a little bit of hopelessness in this question. It's from Martha. She says, I expected COVID would get back to normal after the election and vaccines, but it seems like it's getting worse and the restrictions getting tighter. Is there any hope? Um, Martha, yeah, there's always hope for a believer. In fact, there's always hope for an unbeliever, but the unbeliever for that hope to be fulfilled, they have to become a believer for you and for me as believers. um, Our hope is in what Jesus is going to do each and every day. Um, I don't know. Uh, I told our church uh, yesterday that um, I had this great hope, this picture in my mind that brought me great relief, and the picture was um, December January first coming, December thirty first turning into January first, and um, and suddenly with the vaccines out and with with the elections over. Um, the, the pictures that, that things would return to normal, thinking perhaps that the incoming politicians would um, would really and truly uh, want to sort of take the credit for things getting back to normal. Um, but but remember, God's the one in control. Now, when I say that, I want people to understand here, uh, Martha, you and everybody else, God didn't cause COVID nineteen. Uh, He's using it. We've talked about that many times in response to this question. Um, But here is what we who are believers need to understand, that this time that we're living in right now, according to Acts chapter 17, has been appointed for us by God. In other words, we're here for a reason. That reason is God serving him, and we are equipped and prepared. And God wants us to be useful for this time. In the only time in my lifetime, in fact, since World War II, the whole world is suffering from the same thing. The whole world is dealing with this pandemic. And it represents a time for those of us who are Christians, Martha, when Jesus said the harvest is ripe. The people are ready. In our lifetime, there's never been a time like this. People are losing hope. People are committing suicide and many, many, many more are trying to commit suicide. The despair has gone off the charts. And you see, that means that this is exactly the right time for a message of hope. And that's what we have, Martha. Uh, I'm a person that likes normal. Normal is one of my favorite concepts. But... Our normal now has to be whatever God has for us on this day. And there's always hope there. There's always fulfillment. There's always his presence, which means there's the fullness of joy. And I think we've got to stop looking for our hope to be in a return to normal in exchange for our hope now being wherever Jesus is, doing whatever it is he asks us to do. We had a good day at church yesterday. It was great to see people. Um, some people who should have stayed away for a long time and did uh, are starting to filter back in. And, and to see some of them, uh, it, it was comforting. It felt really good. But the truth is, it looks like we're going to have this situation for some time. I'm not qualified to say how long. I, I, don't, I don't understand But here's what I know. God is going to use those who are usable to win those who are lost. And in that, there's always hope. The message of Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, Martha, is always a hopeful one. And I pray that we're out there sharing it with people constantly in these last days. 340-9585, Karen says, Pastor for you, Who is the hardest people to share Jesus with? Um, Karen, I'm not sure if you mean family. Family is always hard to share Jesus with. Um, I remember when I got saved, the people who knew me the best were the ones who least wanted to hear from me anything about Jesus because I'd been such a vile person. So I think family is the hardest people. Now, if I go a little more generally, I think the single hardest group, the most difficult people to reach with the gospel are nice people, good people. You see, we tell them about getting saved, and the truth is, Karen, they don't think they need to be saved. You know, I, I do more good than bad. I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't mess with anybody. And um, and nice people are the hardest ones to share Jesus with simply because they don't see the need. We still have the responsibility to share. We then follow that Obedience to share with faithful prayer. And then the Holy Spirit, who knows where he's going to go and upon whom he's going to land. But nice people, in my view, they say things like, well, well, I'm better than other people, or I'm not a murderer, I don't do bad things, I haven't been in jail. You know, Karen, I've shared this story before, but I was once sharing with a cop, his wife, a San Antonio police officer. Uh, his wife got saved in her church, and she was just pleading with me to talk with him. And I usually tell him, "Look, I'll talk with him, but they want—they need to want to talk with me. I'm not going to ambush him, or or just you know because you want them. To. If they don't want to be here, then I, I don't need him to be here. I don't need to talk to him. But but he came in, and we shared for a while. And the thing that stumbled him the most a police officer who's out in the streets dealing with the worst of the worst every day. And he asked me the question directly, are you going to tell me that the people that I arrest, the people that I have to encounter every single night and every single day on the job, that they're going to be in heaven, all they have to do, all they have to do is believe in Jesus. I said, yeah, I'm going to tell you that. And he didn't want to hear another thing. And I told him, I said, you know, you have an uh, uh, an inflated estimate of your own goodness. Because you're caught, because you follow the rules, believe me, that's not going to get you to heaven at all. So uh, I hope that answers your question, Karen. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Art. He says, what is the meaning of and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth in Acts chapter 22, verse 14. Did Paul see Jesus face to face? He did. I'm going to turn to that passage of Scripture so I get the context for you. But yes, Paul did seem... uh, I'm getting my Bible here going now. Paul did see Jesus face to face several times, three times for sure that we know, in addition to the visits of Jesus from um, uh, the three years in in Arabia when he was being taught by Jesus. Um, this is the place where Paul is sharing his testimony again, and he's talking about when Ananias came to him, um, a man who was highly respected by all the Jews. And he said, stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. So in context, um, Art, he is saying exactly that, that Jesus would appear to him. Um, we know one of those times was in uh, Corinth, Acts chapter 18. Uh, another time, of course, was uh, when he was converted, Acts chapter uh, nine um, but but, in addition to that, in those wildernesses of Arabia and other times, there were at least three face to face encounters that Paul had with the risen Christ. Um, exceptional visions, Paul says in second Corinthians chapter twelve that the thorn in the flesh um, was was a result of a messenger from Satan who was buffeting his flesh. It was a very painful physical condition. And, and even after asking uh, and being denied that this thorn be taken away from him, he understood that, no, this this thorn was given me as a gift from God to keep me be, from becoming conceited because of the surpassingly great um, visitations and revelations that he saw. And remember, he'd been to heaven after being stoned to death in Lystra. Uh, so so um, Paul had direct face-to-face encounters with Jesus? Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our next question. We'd love your phone calls. I know uh, a little slow after the holiday break, but Anonymous says, um, I stole from people before I got saved. Am I required to pay them back now that I am saved? Uh, And then he or she says, I don't have any money to do it. Uh, anonymous, no, you're not required. Your sins before you got saved are are old and gone. Now, if you have the chance to make things right, then you ought to do that. But you're not required to do that. You are saved by grace through faith. You've given your heart to Jesus. You've asked for forgiveness for those sins. Those sins are now in the deepest, darkest ocean as far from you as east is from west. And uh, there's no need for you to go back and and right every wrong thing that's really important to remember it's great that you want to in your heart uh, but at the same time um, you know there's no legalistic way back to where you are Uh, when you get the chance you say I'm sorry please forgive me Um, I I used to tell people look I was insane before I got saved didn't know it but I was insane Uh, and, and I'm sorry and I, I was fortunate uh, to come into contact with enough people that I had really sinned against um, to, to to be able to explain to them that, that uh, this is what I did. That's the old me. You may not want to hear it, but I gave my life to Jesus and everything is different now. And um, I, I ask for your forgiveness. Uh, I had no money to make things right at all. Um, but at the same time, it's not something that it's, uh, that's required of you at all to do it. I hope that gives you a little bit of relief. Let's go to our first caller of the year, 2021, Cindy, on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hi, Pastor Ron. Happy New Year.
3: And to you too, Cindy.
2: Thank you. You know, the other night um, I recorded Ben Hur. And uh, it's one of Hollywood's better <laughs> moments, I think, when they made that movie. I loved and, it. Yeah, well, when I was watching it, I was thinking about how the Jews at that time, you know, they, they really didn't get it that Jesus was there for their salvation, and they're thinking, well, he's there, you know, to free them from Rome. But now I think that, you know, 2,000 years later, that message has got to been, you know, sinking into them that it was the salvation in Jesus that that everybody needed. So you'd think that they would kind of get the drift by now. And what I'm thinking about and wondering is uh, when the Antichrist comes, are the Jews going to flock to the Antichrist? And are they going to think that they're going to get salvation? Or are they going to go back to the same old thing of thinking, well, the Antichrist is going to free us, uh, the Messiah. He's going to be the Messiah, and he's going to free us from the world, you know, uh, rule or whatever it is that's going to be going on then? So that was kind of my um, that was kind of like what I was thinking about, and, and yep. I'll get off the air and listen to your comment.
3: Thank thank you, Cindy. That, that's very insightful, actually. Um, uh, Ben Hur is a great movie. If you haven't seen Ben Hur, watch it. It's it's just a great movie. Now, obviously, it's not a, a an authoritative or or uh, correct biblically. But the principles are all there, and and it's really, really a good movie, and sort of gets you into the the an understanding of just how difficult it was for for early Christians. But yeah, great, great movie. Um, Cindy, when the Antichrist comes, and yes, they are going to flock after the Antichrist when he appears, and he will appear after the church is raptured. So, as Christians, most people listening to this radio station. Um, you you know we're not going to be here to see or experience these things, uh, but when the Antichrist comes, he's going to be hailed as a man of peace. Remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, "When people are seeing saying peace and safety, watch out." Well, that's what he's going to do. Uh, he is going to um, come up with a plan that will allow the Jewish Temple, Solomon's Temple, to be rebuilt right outside the boundaries of the. Um, Islamic mosque that's, that's there in Jerusalem. You see it with the Golden Dome um, in pictures of Jerusalem on the hill. Uh, and the Jews, because he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple, sacrifices will begin uh, being offered again in the temple during the Great Tribulation. And this is all going to occur in the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And he's going to be hailed as the greatest man of peace ever and he is going to be considered to be their deliverer, and Jews are going to flock to him. Now, not all Jews, of course, are going to be fooled or convinced, but many, most, in fact, will. Now, what's going to happen? Because Satan is jealous. uh, The Antichrist is going to be empowered by Satan. At the three-and-a-half-year period of the Great Tribulation, he's going to demand to be worshipped. He's going to be so tired of seeing God being worshipped and sacrifices made to him. He's actually going to set up in Daniel chapter 9, the abomination that causes desolation in the Holy of Holies. And that's going to be the last straw. That's when Jews are going to run from him. He is going to pursue them with all of the power, the considerable power he has at his disposal. And they're going to run to a city called Petra. The Rock City in Jordan, what is modern-day Jordan, um, and it, it's a, a place that is easily defended. I mean, there's, there's a very small opening to get through. Armies can't get through. People go in, in single file, and Jews are going to run away from him. Uh, Isaiah says they're going to run and, and be carried as though they were on wings of eagles, uh, and they're going to be safe. That's where, where Jews are going to be preserved for the second half of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. But uh, that's when they're going to know this is a fraud. That's when they're going to know that they've been duped. And um, sadly, many still aren't going to believe. When Jesus appears in the sky, when he comes back, Revelation chapter 19, um, many Jews, uh, one-third of the Jews who are alive in and around Jerusalem at that time, one-third are going to look at him and and, and recognize that, that the Messiah that we're looking for has been here and his name is Jesus. And they're going to look at him and they're going to say, where did you get these wounds? He's going to say, I got these wounds in the house of my friend and their hearts are going to be pierced. One third of the Jews alive are going to get saved at that very moment. Two thirds, sadly, still are not. But today, when you said you'd think by now it'd be sinking in, there is a, a, a fairly significant movement of Jews who are becoming born again believers all over the world, um, uh, not in significant enough numbers that it's starting to impact uh, um, the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, but individually. Remember, God is dealing with individuals today rather than nations. It won't be until the Great Tribulation begins that God once again turns his attention completely to Jerusalem and to the, the people of Jerusalem. So it's just one of those things, Cindy, where uh, they ought to get it, but they don't. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says they don't hear the word now, or they don't receive it now, because there's a veil that's covering their hearts. But if they turn to Jesus, and I always imagine just a little tiny turn to Jesus, then that veil would be ripped away, and the Holy Spirit will be able to reveal the person of Jesus Christ. Those are the Jews that are getting saved now. So I hope that makes sense to you, Uh, Sandy. Thank you very, very much. Um, My producer's just giving me a note. You can watch the 1959 original Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, not the remake in 2016. Thank you for that. I did see part of the remake and turned it off. So the original with Charlton Heston. You know, whenever we, whenever Paul and I talk about Charlton Heston in the, 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 the Ten Commandments or or Ben-Hur, any of the movies, we always look at you and say, boy, he's accountable, isn't he? Now, I don't think Charlton Heston ever got saved. How could he not be saved based on the roles that he's playing? I mean, he played Moses and played the title character in Ben-Hur. He is really, really accountable. Cindy, thanks. Good question. Thank you very much. you got under two minutes? Here's one I can do. In under two minutes, Brian wants to know, to you, Pastor Ron, who are the two most outstanding leaders in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and the New Testament? Um, I have a t- tendency, Brian, to, to to pick David in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. Uh, my reasoning for saying that now Moses is is by far considered the outstanding leader among Jews in the world in the history of of, of the Jewish people, um, but. Uh, when John and James came to Jesus, or, or sent their mother to say, "Can we have the seats on your left and your right?" And Jesus said, "No, those aren't mine to give. Those seats have already been taken." Uh, I believe that David, uh, Ezekiel calls him the Prince of Israel in the in the millennium, and uh, and the Apostle Paul are the people that will occupy the seats on Jesus' right and Jesus' left when he comes into his kingdom. So uh, I think that makes them, in God's eyes, the most outstanding. But I wouldn't argue with somebody who picked Moses as well. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our first day. Back Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free 877 kslr This is the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox from Chip. He said, is Psalm 58 verses 10 and 11 considered an end times prophecy of the raptured church who follows Christ in judgment? Let me read the psalm and then we will uh, um, talk about it. Um, Verse 10 in Psalm 58 says, The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. And then Chip makes the reference to uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, which speaks of Jesus saying he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Uh, Chip, this is not a prophecy of, of, of the end times. Um, in this psalm, um, what, what's being spoken of here is the vindication of the just. You know, there's a common theme throughout many of the psalms you know, Psalm seventy three, for example, um you know, surely God is good to Israel. And then he says, But as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the, the, the arrogant and saw how they prospered. Um, um this is just a cry for vindication. Um and when um they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked, uh, the the idea there is in war after victory. Now remember um uh, there were there were constant um Times throughout Israel's history, where enemies, uh, whether it be Assyria or or Babylon or later Greece, um, uh, Medo Persia, um, and then finally Rome, uh, would would come and utterly devastate um, the, the people, and they they cried out for vindication to God. So that's what's in view here. Now in Revelation chapter nineteen. Um, Chip, when it says he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood um, it, it's sort of a fulfillment of all of the vindication because the the blood that Jesus's uh, robe is going to be covered in uh, is the, 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 the blood of his enemies those who opposed him so um, when he comes and we'll be with him in Revelation chapter 19 but Psalm 58 has nothing to do with it, there's a more local view of that in terms of We want to be vindicated, you know, one of the, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, when uh, John is taken in the Spirit, Um, and by the way, we're going to be doing the book of Revelation again on Friday nights as soon as we're done with Ephesians, which won't be for probably three months at least, maybe even a little bit more, but, um, um, you know, they're they're seen under the altar of God, The, the martyrs, the Jewish martyrs are seen under the, the altar of God, asking how long will God until you vindicate us? And he says, just wait a little while longer. And that vindication could be a long-term picture of what David is talking about. But in view of uh, the, the psalm itself, it's more of the enemies that are beating on them um, throughout times, whether it's in the book of Judges or, or beyond that, uh, leading to the captivity by Babylon. Good question. Regina asked a wonderful question. She said, in this tough economy, what should churches be doing for single moms? And then she says, what is your church doing? Um, Regina, we believe, now uh, I, I'm, we're certainly not alone. We're not a, a wealthy church. Um, I, I wish we were. I'd make sure nobody ever had any needs that were unmet, but lots of churches are helping out the poor and single moms. We have always viewed the single moms and their children as sort of the widows and orphans of the New Testament age that we live in. So um, we ought to be supporting our single moms. Uh, And it shouldn't be just with food pantries. Um, We we need to actively, aggressively find out what their needs are at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, which is the, the church that you asked about, um, we, are, um, we do everything we can to make sure that we know what the needs are. It is very frustrating at times, Regina, uh, because we'll tell single moms in our church all the time, don't you ever go hungry. Don't you ever let your, your uh, utility bills get behind. You let us know. We, we can't know when somebody's struggling. Um, and yet they don't do it because they feel awkward about doing it. Um, but we want to be sure that they have. We have two ministries that are designed especially for single moms and their kids. Um, that everybody gets involved in. Uh, we buy them gift cards from Walmart or H E B or or other places where they can get whatever it is that they need, um, and they don't have to ask. All oh, we we got a list of who they are. We just pass out those gift cards um, uh, when we get them, and and we get them a lot. And that's just out of the goodness of the people's hearts who come here and call Calvary Chapel of San Antonio their home. Um, Regina, if you are a single mom, uh, you don't have to come to Calvary Chapel to get some help. Just let us know, and uh, we'll do everything that we can. Remember, we're not a wealthy church. We spend all our money on free stuff that we do here at the church, but at the same time, um, the single moms, and especially those who go to our church, uh, we consider them... Our responsibility. So I hope that answers your question, Regina. And by the way, Regina's question, and others like it, if if my answers aren't specific enough, just write back or or um, find out whatever it is that you're looking for. Here is I did that Google okay, I did that question already. Here is a question from Gino. He said, do you believe Jonah was alive or dead in the fish? Um, Gino, I believe he's alive in the fish. Um, I know there are some who believe he died and was resurrected as a picture of Jesus Christ. Uh, J. Vernon McGee is a very vocal proponent, or was when he was alive, of that theory. Um, I don't believe so. I don't think there's any um, um, evidence that suggests that he was dead and was resurrected. Uh, I think he stayed alive in the belly of the fish and uh, uh, was alive when he was vomited up on the beach um, uh, in Assyria. So, um, yeah, I do, I do believe that he was alive. And, uh, again, there are credible people who differ, and I don't think it's really all that important, Gino. You know? Thanks for the question. Anonymous says, Pastor Ron, do you have any suggestions for helping me deal with my anger issues? Um, Yeah, walk in the spirit, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, Anonymous, but walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. Uh, When we give in to our anger, the Bible says, "In your anger, do not sin." Um, So, so righteous anger is permitted; it's not a sin to be righteously angry. When we sin in that anger, it ceases to be righteous. So uh, what we have to do is, is understand that we cannot simply give in to our fleshy impulses uh, when we are believers. Uh, I've had people say, well, I'm just angry. I've always been angry. This is the way I was born, or I have a hot temper. Remember, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, Everything changes and everything begins with you. Uh, the old is gone and the new has come. And um, I think what you've got to realize, Anonymous, is that every time you feel that anger welling up, that you're in a dangerous place of sinning in your anger and you've got to hate sinning against God. And you understand, God was patient with you. He wasn't angry with you. Uh, and, and you realize that, that to sin because you're angry... Well, being angry is no excuse for sinning. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, and if you've been born again, and I'm sure you have, you're asking this question, then you need to realize that you never again have to give in to your anger. You will be angry, and yet you can frustrate that anger by dying to your flesh and living for Christ. You get to the point where you just get tired of saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, I keep breaking the same promises. Remember that the power that raised Christ in the dead lives in you. And if that power lives in you, certainly that power is sufficient for you to deny those fleshly impulses. So, Anonymous, it's really important that you deal with this. The enemy is going to keep pushing those buttons. And we need to remember that he's relentless And uh, he knows you've given him the buttons to push. And so what we got to do is remember that there's sort of a new power in control of our lives. And we got to do that. So realize that when you are struggling with your anger issues, that's flesh. When you're denying your flesh for the glory of God, well, that's when the Spirit takes over. Acts 5.32 says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. That means when you feel that anger coming and you say, Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you again. I don't want to sin against you again. Um, help me. That power will come flooding. That's what obedience is. And you simply have to make a decision that I'm not going to let anger ruin or compromise my witness ever again. And believe me, you can do it. The same thing is true for people with ugly mouths and, 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 um, People that are unkind, um, remember, flesh will kill you, it will destroy you, and the Spirit saves. So Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. It's, It's really much easier than it seems. All we've got to do is have the power of God available to us, and we only do that when we yield to the power of God. Robert asked me a question. How should the Christian respond when the government tries to take away our guns? Robert, I don't want to get really political with this. I'm not a gun guy. I'm certainly not opposed to anybody else having guns, um, but this is a decision that you're going to have to make prayerfully when and if that time ever comes. I can tell you right now that that uh, the, the, the new administration um, won't even have started when they begin the process of legislating against gun ownership, in particular, automatic weapons. Uh, I think we need to be ready for it. I think, um, you know, um, as Barack Obama once said famously, con- elections have consequences. I think one of the consequences of of our nation um, voting the way it did is that we're, we're going to see all kinds of craziness. Um I'm going to try not to get political because I said I wasn't, but I want you to think about the things that already have been determined that are priorities in their agenda. Um, We're going to have this craziness over the world and um, how we care for it. Um, Guns is an issue, of course, Um, student loan, debt being forgiven. Um, money we don't have to pay. Um, we're going to pray. Robert, we need to pray. Now, should you let the government take away your guns or register your guns? That's between you and the Lord, but I think we all need to be prepared for this. So, Romans 14, 23 says, anything not of faith is sin. Is this is something I think you're going to have to wrestle with. Again, I'm not a gun guy, so I don't have any attachment uh, to, to guns, um, but uh, I sure want to, uh, um, I'm one of, I think we all have the ability to choose, the freedom to choose, which is one of the tenets our nation has been founded on. You know what, Robert, I'm going to start stop talking now with regard to that because uh, if I do, I'll get political. I don't want this show to, to turn to politics. I think we've got a period of prayer Um, a time of testing uh, that we're all going to have to endure. We need to be ready. Patricia says, what is the practical way to let the peace of God rule in my heart, as Colossians 3.15 promises? Um, You know, um, uh, I answer this question the same way all the time. Um, The practical way is to just be with Jesus. Um, He is our peace. When he was getting ready to say goodbye, Patricia, to his disciples. He told them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And then he made a prophecy of the, 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 our future in heaven. But here's what he said to them. Now these are men that were greatly troubled. Their, their, their lives were crashing before them. And he said, my peace I give unto you. And I always insert the word personal. I, I, I want it that personal for me. My personal peace, run I give to you. That's a gift that he's given us. So if we're not letting the peace of God rule in our hearts, we're sort of giving that peace back, that gift that he gave us. And the only way we can do that effectively, Patricia, is to be with Jesus. Now, 2020 uh, has been a real test. A real test. If you weren't peaceful in 2020, we need to start making some adjustments. And since the peace Jesus promised is our personal peace, or I'm sorry, rather his personal peace, if we're not experiencing that, then the the, the fault is with us. We're not doing what we need to do in terms of of running into his presence every day and, and remaining there all day. So, I, I for me personally, Patricia, there's nothing more practical than that. Paul said he learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. That's certainly a way to let the peace of God rule in your heart. But you can't do that without being with Jesus. If you'll spend more time every day with Jesus, and I can promise you this, everybody listening, I can promise you that if you spend more time with Jesus, then you will crave spending even more time with him from that point forward. And pretty soon you'll have the peace of God in your heart because because the, the, the Christ who lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit will be the one in control. Sure you've got a battle with your flesh but if you're with Jesus he's going to win that battle for you. You know I'm only a couple of chapters away from um, Jacob's wrestling match with Jesus in Genesis chapter 32 on our Wednesday night studies. Um If you'll get so close to Jesus, Patricia, that you'll say, I will not let go of this, or you bless me. then that peace of God will be with you all the time. When the devil starts pushing those anxiety buttons, just remember Jesus' words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's a choice that we can make. And if we're making the wrong choice and the anxiety level is ramping up, then and only then... Uh, do we have to run to him for the solution? Because we don't have any solution on our own. I think practically, Patricia, we can stop um, ingesting enormous quantities of media. Um, I think that the amount of time and energy that we spend on social media is obscene and robs us of the joy, the peace that Jesus promised. So I think those are practical things that we can do. But remember, it all Revolves around you just being with Jesus all day, every day. She asked another question. She said, uh, another Colossians question. She said, How exactly would I set my mind on things above? Um, that's that's the same. My answer is going to be the same. Uh, you got to think about Jesus, got to talk to Jesus. Um, you know, when Paul says to set our hearts and our minds on things above, it's Colossians 3 1 and 2. Set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, um, the, The heart is the place of affection. The mind is the place of decision. So you've got to have a partnership between that which your heart longs for and then draw your brain into the partnership by saying, okay, that's what I choose. And because our flesh is weak, Patricia, we need to make that choice every single day And we might need to make it many, many times during the day and then that peace of God will rule and reign in your heart. And remember, it's his personal peace. Uh, It's like Jesus gives you a keepsake instead of a ring or a brooch or something. He says, here's the best thing I've got until I come again. Here's my peace. And he gives it to you. I think that's really the place we all need to be. Great question. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from William. Um, Pastor Ron, how would you describe a perfect church? Well, William, the first thing I would say is there is no such thing as perfect church. Um, you know, if Calvary Chapel of San Antonio was perfect, I'd, I'd ruin it every time I showed up because I'm far from perfect. But a perfect church, uh, the church that, that God would lead you to, Uh, is a church that is a house of prayer. Uh, Jesus seemed to be the most offended uh, when he overturned the money changers' tables, when he said, look, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a, a, a den of thievery. So it needs to be a house of prayer. One of the things, and this is for the entire audience, not just William, one of the things that we Christians need to be more resolved to do in 2021 is to be men and women of prayer. You know, we have corporate prayer here every Saturday morning for one hour. Um, and, and you know, I know we live busy lives. Nobody should be here all the time. Uh, Paul and I are here every Saturday if we're here in town. Uh, if not, then Pastor Ken may come. But everybody ought to be there sometime. So nobody should be there all the time. Again, we understand life happens. But everybody ought to be at some corporate prayer event. Sometimes. It ought to be a part of your life. If you really believed in the power of prayer, then you would be there whenever you could. Again, nobody not legalistic, but, but everybody ought to be there sometimes. It also ought to be a house of worship, a place where we worship God with all of our hearts. Um, typically in our church culture that's done with music. Uh, it always frustrates me when I see people coming in toward the end of the music. It's like, well, you know, the music is over, so so I'll, I'll be 15, 20 minutes late. Um, that's to miss out on a part of the worship experience. Imagine telling God, I didn't like the music, so I didn't worship you. You know, you can tolerate the music and still worship with a pure heart. So the perfect church needs to be a house of worship where you can worship Jesus. It needs to be a house of fellowship. That's the reason that virtual church really isn't church. We need one another. We need flesh and bones, flesh and blood contact. We need the opportunity to use our gifts um, to minister to others. That's what fellowship is. And and in return, we'll be blessed by the fellowship of others. So, It's a place where the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, and the fearful gather. Uh, So a perfect church needs to be a place where the fellowship is rich. Um, You know, William, our people don't want to go home. I love that. A perfect church is a place of service. Uh, It's a place where you commit to using the gifts God has given you for the benefit of others. No, no benefit to you. Now, obviously, there will be benefit coming to you. But that can't be your motive. You're doing it for others. You're using your gifts to be a blessing to others, which is exactly the example Jesus set for us. In John chapter 13, when he washed the feet of his disciples, he said, I've done this as an example that you also then ought to do. So it needs to be a place of service. And then this may sound a little strange, but it's got to be a place of commitment. Church can't be a casual, stopping off place. It needs to be a place where you're committed. You know, when I was first called to be a pastor, I was only six months old in the, in the Lord, and, and I was sort of, um, I didn't know what a pastor did. I'd been raised in church. So all I thought was, well, okay, Lord, if I'm going to be a pastor, then I want, I want a pastor church that's 100% committed and submitted to you. Well, that church doesn't exist but if you're looking for a perfect church, it's the church where you can be committed, heart and soul, to the Lord, and in His service minister to the people. That He has, you know. William, we've, we're inside two minutes now, so I'm going to. This will be my last comment for the program today. But um, I think what we're beginning to see now, after. 9 months of quarantine. I think what we're beginning to see is people realizing how much they miss the fellowship of believers. And if they're missing the fellowship of believers, when they come back in it's like a breath of fresh air. And it's it's what we need. We don't do well on our own. We don't do well in isolation. So the perfect church is where a believer can come in and say, okay, Jesus, what about me? And what about today? I am yours. And he'll use you. If you get up in the morning on Sunday or if you go to a midweek as well, just, okay, Lord, I'm praying for divine appointments. If, if there are people who are hurting, people that I can minister to, then put them in my way. I promise you, William, he'll do that. And when you involve yourself in a church like that, I promise you, your life will be enriched immeasurably. And that's why church is so important. As a pastor, as a Christ lover, it is more than frustrating to hear the number of people that think that, well, I can watch online, and that's enough for them. They're missing the whole point of church. I think some people are starting to learn that lesson. Hey, thanks for tuning in for our first program of 2021. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember, our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7. May the Lord bless you. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.